Good morning. For those of you who do not know me, uh, my name is David Lundin, and I'm a member here at Trinity, and I will be bringing the word to you this morning. But before we do that, let's, let's bow our heads in prayer together. God, thank you that you are a good father, and thank you for calling us your children, for your love, for your presence. God, we thank you for being with us, and we just pray that your spirit would move mightily this morning and that your word um, would go out. We pray for your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1914, British polar explorer Ernest Shackleton set off for his third attempt to reach the South Pole and cross the continent with a crew of 28 men. But the expedition didn't go as planned. In January the next year, their boat, the Endurance, became trapped in ice. In November, she sank beneath the ice. The crew tried to reach an island where they knew that they had supplies. But instead, they ended up on Elephant Island, an inhospitable place far away from any shipping routes. So in April of 1916, Shackleton embarked with five of his men on a 720 nautical mile journey back to the island of South Georgia in his best 20-foot lifeboat. He insisted on only taking four weeks of supplies with him, knowing that if it took them any longer than that, they would be dead anyway. The six men battled 16 days on stormy seas, facing hurricane-force winds, before they were able to land on South Georgia. But they had to reach the other side on the island by foot in order to reach the Stromness station from where Shackleton was able to organize rescue missions for the other men. But when all the dust was settled, Shackleton was asked to tell of his most terrible moment. He answered that his worst was one night in an emergency hut. He and his fellows were laying there, he a little bit part from the rest. He had just given out the last ration of the last biscuits that they had. There was nothing more to divide, and every man thought the other one was asleep. And it was then that he sensed a stealthy movement, and he saw one of the men turning to see how the others were doing. This man made up his mind that everyone was asleep, and he then stretched over the next man and took his biscuit bag and removed the biscuit. Shackleton said that of this, he lived, he, he lived through an eternity of suspense because he would have trusted his whole life in the hands of that man. And now, was he turning out a thief under terrible, tragic circumstances? Stealing a man's last biscuit? But then he sensed another movement. He saw the man open his own box, take the biscuit out of his own bag, and put it in his friend's. And then he returned the man's own biscuit, and he put the bag back at the man's side. And of this, Shackleton said, I dare not tell you that man's name. I felt that act was a secret between himself and God. We see in this real historical story an example of complete other-oriented love, of a kind of love that is self-sacrificing 
the kind of love that can save a life. All 28 men survived the two years in the wilderness, perhaps only because of a love that was other-oriented. Shackleton led his men with this kind of example, and they obviously followed suit. Today we're looking at 1 Corinthians 13. You can find it on page 1137 in the Pew Bibles in front of you. This this chapter is often called the love chapter. There are few verses than the love verses more known to us today. They're a staple at our weddings. They're inspiration for our relationships and even the the subject of plaques on our walls. And it's good for us to uphold these verses like this, but this chapter tells us so much more than just that. And we must always be careful to look at the Bible in its specific context and not merely read our own reality into it. We have been studying the book of 1 Corinthians for a while now, and as many of you know, it's an actual letter from the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth. Our chapter today is nestled between two other chapters where Paul is discussing spiritual gifts. And Pastor Gary helped us last week to understand that every spiritual gift has the same author in the Holy Spirit, and that we are one body, and though diverse, we're indispensable to the body. This means that spiritual gifts are good. They're from God, and we must use them for the edification of the body. But in today's chapter, Paul says to us, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. So today we're going to answer that love is supreme in the life of the Christian and in the life of the church. And we will do this by looking at three aspects of this chapter, the first one being the centrality of love. Let's read verses 1 through 3. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. This list is an unexhaustive list on spiritual gifts. But Paul is addressing a few of the gifts that God has blessed a few people in the Corinthian church with. So let's list what he's got on them. It's got speaking in tongues, prophecy, knowledge, mountain-moving faith, philanthropy, giving all of his possessions to the poor, sacrifice, giving over his body to hardship. None of these are bad, right? They're good. Mountain-moving faith. We encourage gifts like these, and we rejoice as a church when we see these gifts being used. We rejoice. But if I speak in tongues but have no love, If I have the gift of prophecy but have no love, if I fathom all mysteries and knowledge but have no love, if I have faith that can move mountains but have no love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor but have no love, if I give over my body to hardship that I may boast but have no love, I gain nothing. And like I said, this is not an exhaustive list. We see spiritual gifts in our church like hospitality, teaching, serving, encouraging, leadership. Paul's letter applies to us too, right? At first it might sound paradoxical that we can be hospitable or we can serve someone without love. 
but it's more possible than we realize. And it isn't our gifts and it isn't our actions, however good and noble they are in and of themselves, that God desires from us. Some of the Corinthians were probably expecting praise and God's favor with them when they manifested their gifts in their worshiping community. But a gift by itself without love is like a clanging cymbal. Something that has immense potential amounts to nothing more than noise. And here's the thing. Paul isn't saying that it is the gift itself that amounts to nothing. But he's saying, I amount to nothing. I myself. The Corinthians themselves. Us. Here. Any manifestation of our spiritual gifts without love amounts us to nothing more than a noisy symbol all by itself. I'm going to demonstrate this for you. It's like this. It's noise, right? Something that has potential together with other instruments. It makes sense. It makes beautiful music. But just as a lone symbol by itself communicates nothing, our actions by themselves communicate nothing. Because love is central. Paul is saying we are nothing without it. Our actions, our gifts, our service is nothing without love. If we are masked behind the cloak of good deeds and doing the right things, but we are not motivated by genuine love, there's no gain. Love is central. Love is where it begins. As the Corinthians struggled in their worship, especially with the practice of prophecy in tongues, what was their highest priority? Paul made it clear to them that it had to be love. The highest virtue for them to pursue was love for one another. They must then also be our highest priority. It's not merely to do the right things, to serve. It's to love one another. And it starts right here in this church. Behind you, next to you, in front of you. It starts in this specific community. Because love is central. But love is uh, an empty word in our culture, right? It's used everywhere and for anything. So we must then also answer what the nature of love is. Let's read verses 4 through 7. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Now, just as the previous section was not an exhaustive list on spiritual gifts, this list is not an exhaustive list on love. We might look at these verses and think that this is it, that this is the definition of love. But it's not. We need to come back to Paul's context and see that he is writing to correct areas of struggle within the Corinthian church. The reality is that these verses are actually a stinging contrast to the behavior of some of the people in that church. Someone had the idea of omitting the negatives in order to get an idea of what the, some of the Corinthians were like. So here's what we would get. They're impatient and unkind. They're filled with jealousy. They're vainglorious and puffed up. They insist on their own way, they are cantankerous and resentful, and they rejoice in wrong rather than right. Now, we don't know if this is Paul's sole motivation, but it's helpful as we seek to define love. 
because we have to move away from thinking of these verses only as in the context of weddings and relationships. These verses are good there, but there's more to them. Paul is primarily writing about living in Christian community in a way that glorifies God, and that is by learning to treat other members of Christ's body the way that God has treated us, with self-sacrificing, other-oriented love. Because the reality of love is that it can never be distanced from God. 1 John 4.10 This is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. 1 John 4.16 God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. 1 John 4.19 We love because He first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. Deuteronomy 7.9 Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. Love begins with God because God is love. We love because he first loved us. And God has manifested love to us by giving us Christ. God defines love. 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7 does not define love. If you want inspiration for what love is, the best thing for us to do is to go to God and to Jesus and to the Bible and learn. If we want to love others, the best thing for us to do is to go to God and to Jesus and the Bible and see how God loves us. Don't take me wrong. This doesn't mean that 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7 isn't awesome. It is awesome. It was read and it was prayed at my own wedding. But it is not the definition of love. Paul is describing love, but he is ultimately pointing to God. Look at verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. God, through Christ, has shown himself forbearing and kind toward those who deserve divine judgment. Patience is an attribute of God, we say, meaning that it is one thing that describes his nature, who he is. The reason why Paul says earlier that without love he is nothing, that without love we are merely like a noisy symbol, is because love reflects God's nature. Spiritual gifts by themselves don't. And we see perhaps the clearest example of what Paul is trying to portray in Jesus himself. Jesus was patient, kind, without pride, other-oriented. He did not delight in evil, always hoped, possessed perseverance. Jesus manifested love like this. And we also know from Jesus' example that love doesn't mean that you're so patient and so kind that you turn a blind eye to evil or injustice. It means that your love is thicker than anything else. Love is to see sin and evil in the hearts of people and yet be beaten on a cross and die as a sacrifice for those sins of those undeserving people, that those people may be washed clean. That's the gospel, right? God has shown us the greatest love in Jesus Christ. And love must be at the core of our worship of God. And we are to imitate his love in our relationships with one another. We can't separate worship of God from love, and we can't separate love from the worship of God. Love has to be a part of our worship and a part of our community, because otherwise we're not worshiping the living God. But it's hard. Love is hard. I know many of you share the same desire that I do. We want people to like us. We want them to enjoy our presence. We want people to want to be with us. 
And sometimes it can be easy for us to think that love is to be pleasant, to, um, to be patient with someone's shortcomings, to be kind, to avoid saying things that offend them, to maybe do things that they enjoy doing. And sure, that can all be loving, but as we saw in the example of Ernest Shackleton, and as we see more in the example of Jesus, love isn't easy. Love is self-sacrifice. To maybe give up what you need or what you want for the sake of someone else. I can, I can think of one man in this congregation who, um, when, he's not, when he's around someone who does not know Jesus, he will likely be talking to them about Jesus. He's made numerous people mad at him, including family members, but he has also helped many come to faith in Jesus. That's a kind of love that isn't on a level that says, that, that says to people what they want to hear, but it's a love that's on a level of sacrificing your own comfort and, pr- and pride to provide them with what they actually need. So we see that love is central to our life as Christians, and we've also to some extent an- answered what the nature of love is. But what's the point with love? What, what's, what's the ultimate reason Why is it so special? Let's read verses 8 through 13. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection, as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Here Paul is hopping back to discussing spiritual gifts again, and the superiority of love in comparison. Why is love the greatest? Verse 8, love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. And be careful to not look at this through the eyes of your human experience. Because then you might want to be tempted and say, what is he talking about? Love fails me all the time. There's a reason a song like Love Hurts has stood the test of time, right? Love fails us all the time in our human experience. But we're not talking about love as in human experience. We're talking about love as defined by God and as defined in God. So once more then, love never fails. Spiritual gifts are good. Paul has upheld them in high esteem. The Holy Spirit has given them to, the church, to us, to the church, and we must use them. We bring glory to God when we use them. But why is love supreme? Prophecies will cease, tongues will be stilled, knowledge will pass away. Verse 9, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. Our gifts and the gifts that God has given his church are not the whole picture. They're pieces. Verse 10, when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. Right now, we live in a partial reality. This world is not all that there is. 
when Jesus comes again, when we see God as face to face, completeness has come. And when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. There won't be any need for prophecies, for tongues, or any other spiritual gifts when we are in the presence of God. These things are parts that the church holds on to and uses when, while we still operate in this partial reality. Verse 11 and 12. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Our human transition from childhood to adulthood makes sense. And it's like the transition from the old earth, this earth, to the fullness of the new heaven and the new earth. The spiritual gifts make sense in this stage of the life of the church. But it will not always. Just as there are things that make perfect sense for children that just do not make sense for adults. Imagine holding a photograph of a loved one that you have not seen for a very long time. The photograph is dear to you. You hold on to it and you cherish and treasure being able to glance at your loved one and remember things about him or her. I inevitably think of servicemen and women in war zones who cling to small pictures of their spouses and their children. A reflected image outlives its usefulness when what it portrays can be seen face to face. When finally reunited, you're not going to sit and look at the photograph, cherishing it like you had when apart. You're going to cherish the fullness of the person. When Christ returns, we will see face to face. And just as that photograph outlives its usefulness, so the gift of the Spirit will have outlived their usefulness when perfection comes at the return of Christ. So let's ask ourselves again, why is love supreme? Verse 13, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Love is supreme because love will not pass away when completeness comes, when perfection comes. Love is supreme because God is love and because love will never abandon eternity. It will never fail. The point of these last verses is that, is that the church must be working right now on those things that will last into God's future. Love is a foretaste of the ultimate reality. As one scholar said, love is not merely the Christian duty. It is the Christian destiny. Love is superior because it leads to God and an eternity with Him. This is crucial. This is why we can't be negligent with love, running around being busy and putting real, genuine love on the back burner. And this is why we can't settle to a mere human experience of love on the level of pop music, Hollywood, relationships, and pizza. Tertullian was known to have declared that the one thing that converted him to Christianity was not arguments that people were providing him with. But he said, they demonstrated something I did not have. The thing that converted me to Christianity was the way they loved each other. Any one gift that we use to bless the church, it's like a, it's like a signpost that you look at and, and hopefully it helps to guide you in the right direction. 
But love, as Paul describes it, is a foretaste of God and of eternity. And when you love someone like this, you're not just pointing and saying that God is over there. Off you go. You're saying, here, taste and see that the Lord is good. See for yourself that God is who he says he is. So love has to be supreme in our life. And it has to be supreme in the life of the church. But it's hard. We're not Jesus. We're not sinless and infallible. We're full of sin. We're by default self-oriented. Which means that love like this doesn't come to us by default. It takes a great dependence upon God. But we don't just stop because something is difficult. Love is supreme in the life of the Christian and in the life of the church. And it is supreme because God is love. Because he defines love. Our genuine love directs people to God. And it isn't always going to be comfortable. It often comes at a great cost. Maybe the loss of our pride or the loss of our last biscuit ration at the end of a two-year-long sub-zero expedition. But love is supreme in the life of the Christian and in the life of the church because love defines who we are in Christ. There are three things that I want you to especially take home with you today. The first one being, know that your God loves you. No matter who you are, what you've done, how hard you've tried to run away from him, regardless of how the fallible love of people in your life have failed you, your God loves you. You can know this because though you did not deserve it, God sent his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross as an atoning sacrifice for your sins. And second, make love a chief priority in your life. I'm not talking about loving pizza or loving coffee or signing up for Christian Mingle when you get home. I'm talking about striving to be like Jesus, to love the people behind you, in front of you, next to you, as Jesus loves them, with a complete other-oriented love. And third, please help this church to make love like this a chief priority that we might be a witness to our community. That by God's grace it may spread, multiply, and exponentially reach every single person in Ludington and beyond. One small opportunity that you will have for this is by joining one of our small groups. And here's the thing. Small groups aren't easy either. Community isn't easy. It involves different people, often strangers, it can be awkward. It's so much more convenient to fold up on your own couch with a tub of Ben and Jerry's and a couple Netflix episodes. But people are important to God. And so people are important to us too. And small groups isn't the golden way for you to love people, but they're one way. And here's the thing. It has to start here, in this church, in this community, before we can ever expect it to reach anywhere else. May we be a people and a church that doesn't just point and say, God is that way, off you go. But may we be a people and a church that says, come. Come, taste, and see that the Lord is good. He is 
who he says he is. Please pray with me. Father, we bring you praise. All glory and honor be to you, Father. We pray that you would teach us to love, that you would help us to love. And Father, we thank you for your love manifested so greatly in Jesus. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.